0: Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 34C, an interview on Ike and the Suez Crisis with Jim Newton. I'm excited to welcome Jim Newton to the show today. Jim is a veteran journalist, author, and lecturer in public policy at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. He is also the author of Eisenhower, the White House Years. And there are a lot of major events that happened during those years, but today, we're going to focus on the one that might just have closed the book on Europe's era of global dominance, the Suez Crisis of 1956. Uh, Jim, thank you for your time. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. So before we dive in, at a very high level, what was the Suez Crisis and why is it a big deal?
1: Well, um, big question uh, and a good one to start with, I guess. Uh, the um, Broadly speaking, I mean, Nasser, General Nasser, uh, was in power in Egypt. Uh, He wanted to build the Aswan Dam, uh, which he saw as a vehicle for improving agriculture in Egypt and modernizing the country. Um, uh, He was uh, shopping around, shall we say, for support for that Uh, in the way of that period, the non-aligned nations in that period. Uh, often, kind of played the United States and the Soviet Union against each other, um, mm-hmm. and that's really what he was up to in the summer of 1956, trying to court American support for the dam, but also leave open the possibility of Soviet support either for the dam or for other projects.
0: And that um, was a big so, dam on the Nile River, correct? Uh, yes,
1: I'm sorry. Yes, the Aswan Dam on the Nile River. Um, and so, the really at the at the highest level, the Suez Crisis is a geopolitical. Uh, flashpoint uh, or set up to be a geopolitical flashpoint between the United States and the Soviet Union turned out not to be. So in that sense, it's different right. than all the others. But but it was kind of built along those lines, even though it ultimately unfolded in a different way.
0: So, so it starts off with Nasser playing kind of the Soviets and the Americans against each other over support for a huge dam that's important right. to the development of Egypt. Right. But what, what ends up being the true trigger point is... Egypt nationalizing the Suez Canal. Uh, And then England, France, and Israel all say, not so fast, my friend, and they retaliate. So how does this get from, you know, before we touch on how we go from a dam to the canal, let's talk about what was the historic relationship between those three countries in Egypt? You know, what's their involvement and interest? And let's start with England. You know, when I think of England, I think of, Back in World War II, the Brits had a bunch of people in Egypt, you know, and I know they were very invested in the canal. Uh, but wh- what is their relationship with Egypt right. here?
1: Well, and interestingly, of course, Nasser, uh, as an anti-colonial leader of Egypt, uh, saw Britain as a foe, really, from the from his rise to power, uh, and even uh, dabbled with the idea of doing battle with the British during World War II in order to secure... Egypt wow. independence. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of cross cutting loyalties here, uh, or cross cutting history, I should say. Um, most relevant to this period. Britain and France were the primary builders of the Suez Canal and owners of it. Um so where there's a threat now the canal is was regarded properly as a sort of international resource it's it was open to international commerce but it passes through Egypt and it's owned by Britain and France. And so therein lies the the rub of a struggle right there. Um that this this monumentally important piece of infrastructure is located in one country and owned by two others with whom there are frosty relations.
0: Absolutely, and and then what's Israel's involvement in this? I mean, Israel was just founded in 1948. About what's that? Six years, eight years before this whole crisis but, is going to happen. Eight years. So, what's their relationship with Egypt like?
1: Israel uh, founded uh, in the in the in a na- an unfriendly neighborhood, uh, as people yeah. say, right? Yeah. So. Um, all of its neighbors uh, were antagonistic toward Israel Egypt is no exception um, and but Israel enjoyed the strong support of the West of course the United States Truman was instrumental in the foundation uh, of, uh, of Israel uh, but Israel from the moment of its founding and really to the present has always enjoyed the strong support of the United States uh, and with that the support of the Western Alliance so Israel had unfriendly immediate neighbors but strong patrons uh, among them Britain France and the united
0: states and when we say unfriendly i mean there had already been what one two wars between israel and egypt at that point
1: yeah oh no there have been uh conflict from the very beginning the six-day war um the uh israel uh saw egypt as an existential threat i mean literally to its existence um and while they're the um the Suez Canal, of course, lies uh, on the edge of the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, right, right. The peninsula itself was something of a buffer uh, between the two. Right. But, uh, but in, in effect, the countries, with the exception of that buffer, abut one another. So they are they are formidable. Egypt was a formidable enemy, very much on Israel's uh, border.
0: Yeah, it didn't take 40 years to cross anymore, but it's still a big buffer right there, the second peninsula. Right,
1: right. I mean, a buffer, but right, a yeah. buffer, right, as you say, it takes <laughs> Moses a long time to cross this. It does not take tanks or planes as long to cross it. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's the state of play, where Egypt, they have this canal owned by what they see as colonial foes, and they also have uh, Israel, a very antagonist relationship there. But what Egypt decides to do is they nationalized the Suez Canal on July 26, 1956. So to that earlier question, how did we get from a, a thing about a dam to nationalizing the Suez Canal?
1: Right. Well, a uh, short version of the long history there. Um, as Nasser uh, courted support for the Aswan Dam, Eisenhower said as a condition of that support that he ceased to seek support from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. That um, antagonized Nasser, who, like many non-aligned countries in that period, felt uh, both took advantage of the hostility between the United States and the Soviet Union and also, also felt, often felt um, manipulated by it. Uh, and in this case, I mean, imagine, this is the president of the United States telling his counterpart what he can and cannot do with respect to, to seeking foreign aid understandably, uh, irritates Nasser. Uh, So Nasser continued, despite Eisenhower's warning that he didn't want him courting Soviet support, continued to do so until finally Nasser sort of made up his mind and decided to accept an American offer of aid for the Aswan Dam. By that point... Ike and the US, U.S. Congress had grown so frustrated that he wouldn't abandon uh, his uh, solicitations to the Soviet Union that they withdrew that support. They, they oh, wow. so suddenly the support that he had assumed was kind of in his back pocket was withdrawn from Nasser, and now he's left without a patron for the dam. Um, yeah. So he's he's not only angry but really stands to have his dream pulled out from under him at that
0: point. Yeah. Mm. And, and so his response to that is to seize the dam. Why then? And, and also, what's it mean when we say nationalize the dam? What the canal. Mean nationalize the dam? Uh, yeah, the canal. Um, the canal. Uh, I'm sorry, canal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no, they're
1: easy. they're easy to mix up. They're all part of the same. They're even yeah. geographically sort of part of the same project. Um, well, what we mean by nationalizing is seizing on behalf of the government. Um, popular uh, technique by smaller countries around the world, very much in this period. Um, We had seen it, um, threats of it in different countries. Uh, Iran had talked about nationalizing its oil industry. And the Eisenhower administration's response was to wage a covert action against Iran and to to topple Mossadegh. Uh, In Guatemala, uh, the Arbenz regime had uh, talked about nationalizing American companies there. uh, And the Eisenhower uh, administration overthrew Arbenz. So this was... This was part of the geopolitics of this period, and this technique of nationalization was often a kind of flashpoint uh, in these conflicts. So what it means is that Nasser, Egyptian troops, uh, seized the canal, and he ordered the employees of the French and British to stay at work. Uh, so he wanted them to keep running the canal, but he was going to seize the revenue from it, and, and, acquire, and the Egyptian government would acquire ownership of the canal
0: itself. And so that revenue would help him build his dam, I presume. Exactly,
1: right. So now got he's it. got an alternative source for the money and uh, the removal of a thorn in his side, which is this giant foreign project running right through the middle of his
0: country. Okay, so how do England and France react to that? And, and how does Israel get impacted by this too? But let's start with England and France. They're yeah, own dam. You know?
1: I guess the short answer is they react not well. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you, know, they
0: are, you know,
1: this is... Um, Deliberately provocative uh, to them. Um, And while it may make uh, a kind of logical sense from Nasser's perspective, it is clearly sticking his thumb in their eye. Um, uh, So their answer uh, was to collaborate secretly to contemplate a military response. um, uh, And uh, Eisenhower recognizing that they would be uh, inclined to do so immediately tried to put the brakes on that and tried to say mm. this is not we let's not resort to to violence or military action here so his first steps in response to the seizure of the canal were to try to slow down what he expected the british particularly the british response to be which would be a military response he he thought that that would not be constructive and you know ike has some experience in military matters obviously yeah, so right. his yeah. uh you know his wisdom on that generally was was accepted, uh, and, and so in this case, I think he had initial reason to think that he could uh, intervene to slow down this crisis and to prevent a military conflict.
0: So, England and France, understandably, they're angry. This dam was worth a lot of money to them. It's vitally strategic important to them. England reach India, you know, huge. How does Israel get involved? You know, how are they impacted by the seizure of the canal? Yeah, I, I,
1: it's a good question. Um, and the best answer I can say to that is really indirectly. Uh, I mean, they have commercial interests, Of course, uh, commerce flows through the canal. They're very close to the north end yeah. of the canal. And so yeah. there is a commercial they have a commercial and trade interest in the canal being open and accessible to them obviously they would be frightened to have that commerce cut off by Egypt because Egypt is hostile to them. Um, but the real, I think the larger perspective for Israel is that this is an opportunity to ally militarily with Britain and France. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, in uh, pursuit of its other objectives, which is a security, its own security in the region, and Egypt is such a threat to that security that now here's an opportunity, perhaps, to bolster that security with the assistance of Britain and France. Um, so, Egypt's, or I'm sorry, uh, Israel's interests in this are both very immediate. And indirect, but also uh, monumental um, in the sense that really at stake for Israel in almost any regional conflict in that period is its survival. Uh, because yeah. of a small country surrounded by enemies, and Egypt is chief among them, at least in that period.
0: All right, so, so we have Israel, England, and France coming together to hatch a plot. Eisenhower's trying to talk them out of it, not knowing what that plot is, but what is the plot they come up with? What is the plan? that they land on for how they're going to respond.
1: Yeah. Their plan hatched uh, in secret. And when I say secret, I mean deliberately kept from Eisenhower um, yeah. uh, was to invade uh, Egypt, seize, seize control of the canal and then demand that both uh, that all parties withdraw 10 miles, I think it's 10 miles or 10 kilometers. I forget uh, from the canal. So uh, sort of to create a kind of a protected zone. What would that mean? That would mean that they would reestablish their own control over the canal, and presumably hope to avoid a wider conflict by by freezing that situation in place. Now, that makes sense if you're Britain or France. Or <laughs> makes sense if you're Israel. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you're Nasser because it 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 undoes everything Nasser has do, just done. I mean, it it does so in the name in the in the name of a kind of restoration of stability but it does so completely at the expense of Egypt. So it it makes sense on the drawing boards. It doesn't make a lot of sense on the ground, at least if you're Egypt.
0: Cool. So that, that's the plan they have. And and let's revisit why Eisenhower opposed this action. I mean, you'd mentioned, you'd laid out twice, Iran nationalizes oil, he, he gets involved. There's a coup. Yeah. Guatemala talks about he gets involved. So why is he like, no, 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 guys, don't worry about Egypt. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. it because it's not our canal? Like, why? why?
1: Yeah. Also a good question. Uh, I mean... It's funny. I don't have a document to point to for this, um, but I remember as I went through the Eisenhower papers uh, on this subject um, and on Middle Eastern relations generally, I pick up a kind of um, a kind of appreciation of Eisenhower for Nasser, um, and I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a, a military bond uh, or mm-hmm. a kind of personal appreciation. I, I I wouldn't go. I certainly wouldn't call it friendship, and I'm not even sure if I would call it admiration but a kind of grudging respect uh for him. Uh so I do think oddly I think there's a little bit of personal chemistry uh there and and that's never to be discounted entirely in international relations. Yeah. Um I think another element here is that he was just frankly pissed off that is that uh France and Britain would do this without his consent and over his stated objections. I mean, he he didn't. Now, the other thing to keep in mind here is domestic issues. Eisenhower is facing re-election this summer, um, oh, yeah, sure. so the last thing he needs is a crisis in the Middle East. And I'm not saying that his re-election guided his response here. I actually think, to some degree, he was. He even said he'd be willing to forego re-election to resolve this crisis. So who knows whether I take that with a grain of salt but um <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the point here is th- there's politics at all levels uh, there's yeah. geopolitics and there's also domestic politics for Ike um and all of them bend toward him not wanting a war in the Middle East in July of 1956 um and that's really what this action threatened um i mean yeah yeah it, it's it's easy to think of Egypt is just vastly overmatched by Britain, France, and Israel. And to some degree, that's true. But Egypt is no slouch. Uh, I mean, this is a oh, significant a country with a military yeah. on its home turf. Uh, so yeah. uh, this military action could easily have gotten out of hand. Um, and that's in nobody's interest,
0: least of all Ike's. All right. So so that's the plan. That's the thing, interests. And Ike doesn't want a war in July. He gets one in October instead, <laughs> like a week <laughs> before Election Day. Yeah. You yeah, uh, can't want them all. October 29th, 1956, uh, three months, you know, after the, or maybe a bit more than that, after the canal was nationalized, Israel invaded Egypt, if I got the details right, yeah. captured the canal, and then I think like France and England's navies were just there poised off the coast, ready to land, to, <laughs> oh, hey, we just happened to be in the neighborhood to keep the peace and be the heroes here, and and as you said, restore their control of the canal, and I mean, I suppose almost kind of turned Egypt into a client state, potentially, uh, at that level, too. So when this happens, what is Ike's response when he hears what happened? He is
1: livid uh, to <laughs> discover that this has happened. Uh, and again, for all the reasons we've already kind of hinted at, right, that this is a conflict he does not want politically, a conflict that he's worried for the world's sake uh, what might happen. Um, and he's directly told them, don't do it. And they <laughs> win. Yeah. Right. So um, so he has spoken, he thinks um, – forcefully and clearly as the preeminent military political leader on earth at that point to close friends and allies given them his strong recommendation and they have not only disregarded it but lied to him about it um and he was living now the other thing also to mention here not to get completely sidetracked but The Soviet Union is in the right in the middle of suppressing uh, an uprising in Hungary as this is going Mm -hmm. on. So there's a real sense of the wheels coming off the bus uh, in this moment in terms of the balance of powers and containment strategy and Eisenhower as the the skillful hidden hand leader of the of this Mm -hmm. uh, Cold War complex. All of that is fraying at the moment um, as, as this is happening. So Ike is additionally stressed by that. Now that's not that's not the fault of Britain, France or Israel. That's a separate conflict really. But but from Eisenhower's perspective this all has to be managed at once. Um so you know Eisenhower from the day he took office to the day he left governed with the very real threat of of a nuclear war of a of a yeah. global confrontation. And at this moment uh with Hungary um Hungary in, at war with Egypt at war with uh three stalwart American allies. The, the possibility of either of those conflicts escalating into nuclear war was real. Much less two at once.
0: So you brought the Soviets. The, this crisis is happening, and the Soviets also oppose the intervention. You know, what was their reasoning, and and how weird was it to see the Americans and the Soviets on the same side of an issue at this time? Yeah,
1: there's a there's a UN vote in the middle of this where I think there's five or six no votes. And the no votes are the or Israel, France, uh, Britain, a couple others, I guess. And the yes votes include both the Soviet Union and the United States. It's really uh, almost unheard of in the period. I mean, in a in a funny way, the Soviet response is truer to form. Um, I mean, you you expect in a conflict that involves uh, Britain and France on one side. And, right. and a third world nation or, you know, second world nation, whatever we're going to call it, Egypt, uh, you know, up and coming uh, economy like that. You would you almost normally expect the Soviet Union to be on that side of that company. The, the yep. more unusual thing is to find them in an alliance with the United States on that side. Right. Um, right. So it's really the Eisenhower response that's historically more anomalous. Um but yes, the result uh, and and to find the Soviet Union and the United States on the same side of the of the Egypt conflict and on diametrically opposite sides of the Hungary conflict at the right. same, in, in the same summer. Um, yeah. So it's a very bewildering uh, uh, international situation for sure.
0: Okay, so I uh, you know saying don't do this or get out is one thing, but. Israel's already captured the canal. Those navies of England and France are right there. So how does Ike actually get them to listen to him? How does he force them to comply and abandon what they're, yeah. they're doing?
1: It's a, And this part in some ways is the most uh, fascinating of all because he well, he's never going to go to war against uh, Britain right. and France. I mean, that's right. – I, I right. can't imagine that that was ever even discussed. Um, but – He does punish them for it. Uh, He imposes sanctions. He uh, restricts oil uh, that's passing uh, from various countries to Britain and France, particularly Britain. Um, He uh, publicly castigates Eden uh, in Britain. I know Eden very shortly thereafter. the PM? uh, uh, The prime minister. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, This cost him his office and really his well-being. It was really hard on him physically even um, to, to weather this crisis. I wasted no effort uh to punish uh these countries for it and to punish them into submission effectively um so it's not and, and he went to the UN and the UN took uh, uh action against them so which he joined as i say in the unlikely in the strange combination with the Soviet Union um so he didn't just stop at privately um upbraiding them for this he took uh, forceful economic action um and public economic action against them um, And so that's, uh, I guess I'm searching my memory. I can't think of another instance, certainly in the Eisenhower years, but I can't think of another Mm -hmm. instance even beyond that where America acted so publicly and forcefully against Britain and France.
0: For sure. And... Did it work right away? I mean, we we had these navies, like England and France. Did they ever get involved in Egypt, or was this enough that their navies turned home? Yeah, it
1: it did not immediately yield the result that I hoped. They did not immediately withdraw. Uh, But over time, and I'm I'm struggling now to recall the amount of time, but uh, over the coming weeks, months, um, thats you should check me on. But um, uh, ultimately, yes, the Suez Canal... For a time reverted to british management um, British and French management uh, but then over time uh, yeah. ultimately passed over to Egypt, Egypt. Um, as uh, Nasser had hoped Israel did withdraw. I mean you know Israel's hope and all of the one hope of many I'm sure um, was that if they could agree on this ten mile zone, that would leave uh, Israeli forces on the peninsula um, and create right, yeah. a much deeper buffer between israel proper and egypt proper using the sinai as more of a buffer ultimately that zone evaporated and israel returned to its border so it didn't secure the long-term advantage that it wanted but the sinai remained and really in some ways even today remains a sort of largely uninhabited area that that provides some protection from both of them so the short term response to Eisenhower, none of these countries yielded immediately, um, mm-hmm. but uh, they did yield. Um, and I think it really, you know, I used the term earlier, Fred Greenstein coined the expression, the hidden hand presidency. Uh, often you, it's hard to tell the precise results of an Eisenhower foreign policy initiative because they were often conducted quite quietly, Um and only do you, only it's hard to deter It's hard to tell. It's only possible to tell by looking at the papers uh, what results they had sought and what results they achieved. This is a bit of an exception to that because uh, this took place in the in the most public possible way. Um, and though it took some time, it ultimately achieved the Eisenhower objectives, which is to restore Israel. Uh, I'm sorry, to restore Egypt to its borders, to bring uh, Britain and France out of the region, or at least out of the region militarily, um, and to ultimately pass control over the canal to Nasser and
0: Egypt. So if you were to look at like what did each country win or lose in this, you know, starting with the England, France, Israel, you know, Egypt, what would that ledger look like?
1: Uh, I, biggest loss, I would say, would go to Britain, um, in the sense that they were the. It was Eden, the prime minister, who Eisenhower was most furious about. Um, there's a there's a scene um, where the I think it was Dulles um, or American diplomats confronted the British ambassador in um, in Washington, and they were just stunned by how uh, vehement uh, the meeting was. It's really the rare series of meetings between Britain and the United States during this period where they're just openly at odds. Um, mm-hmm. for, the, for the most part, that was a very secure relationship and remains so today. Um, but so I would count Britain and, and the Prime Minister Eden as the biggest losers uh, of the conflict. Um, uh, France, uh, maybe more of a more of a misdemeanor uh, loss than a <laughs> colony, um, but uh, they had less at stake, um, yeah. but ultimately did not Prevail. Uh, So, in that sense, a loss. And same with Israel. I think Israel saw this as an opportunity to advance its interests and ultimately didn't succeed in doing so. But in no real way did it actually uh, strip it of anything. It just returned to the sort of status quo before the war. Um, Biggest winners, uh, well, obviously Egypt um, and the Nasser government. Uh, They got the canal they wanted and ultimately built the Aswan Dam. And so uh, this. Although a bumpy way to get there, um, ultimately got them where they wanted. Um, and I, I would count Eisenhower as, and the United States as a winner in this. I mean, I think it it was um, powerful to the Third World to see the United States rise up in defense uh, of, of Egypt uh, against its own historic allies. Um, it helped. Uh, it certainly didn't erase, but I think it helped uh, mitigate the the. Um, Uh, General uh, feeling that the United States fought on behalf of uh, Western democracies and against um, emergent democracies. It scrambled that uh, traditional sense that the Soviets were the allies of those countries and the United States Mm -hmm. was a privileged country away from that. Um, In these days, it was the Eisenhower, uh, the uh, administration's role in the Arbenz and Mossadegh uh, um, actions were not widely known um, right, right As those became known, that yeah. solidified a sense of the United States as a sort of oppressive uh, northern neighbor. Um, this is a good counterexample to that narrative. Uh, so I think in all those ways, um, the, the timing is a little scrambled because it didn't answer the questions about Arbenz, for instance, because people just didn't know. But right. as those facts became known, this was a good uh uh, counterfactual argument. I mean, it was a, an argument on the other side of that equation. So, in that sense, I think, um, and of course, Eisenhower succeeded in suppressing this from becoming the regional or even a global conflict. So, in all those ways, I would count Eisenhower and therefore the United States as a as a winner in this as well.
0: And I'm curious what you would make of the statement I, I made at the top of the show that this was a moment that might have kind of ended that that era of European global dominance, you know. Was this a milestone in that or, or more of a speed? What would you make of that? Yeah. Of how the world perceived? Who's really running this globe?
1: Uh-huh. It's I, you know, it's funny, I'd never heard it characterized that way until you just did. So I've been I've been thinking about it as we've been talking. I think there's a case to be made for that. I mean, I, as I say, I haven't ever heard that characterization of it, but, um, it's certainly at a minimum, it is a moment where the expectation that the, that Europe and the United States would act in concert that, mm-hmm. to get their way in other parts of the world fractured. Um, you know, it, we've seen some of that since, uh, in Syria is coming to mind. Um, uh and in many other instances, so uh is it the begin- is it the end of one era and the beginning of another? I'd have to think more on that, I think, but it certainly is a uh uh an inflection point in our in a relationship um and it has been more complicated since and for the better by the way <laughs> uh since um so in that sense, yeah, I think you could make a good case for that statement, yeah.
0: And the last question I got for you is, what lessons in leadership can we learn from how Eisenhower navigated this crisis?
1: Uh, Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that in anticipation of our talk today. Um, uh, It's funny because most of the lessons that I would say that Eisenhower bestowed on us are not really in evidence in this crisis, Mm -hmm. in the sense that he was... Very reluctant to use military force. That's true here, too. Of course, the United States didn't engage militarily. Very reluctant to use military force. Very willing to threaten. Um, uh, Generally, very conscientious about the maintenance of alliances. Um, That, you Mm -hmm. know, this is, after all, this was the first head of NATO. Um, His title was Supreme Commander, which is a big one to wear on your shoulder. Um, And so uh, his, his instinct was almost always to... Work in close concert with um, America's European allies, almost always in opposition to the Soviet Union or to some degree China um, and to do so quietly um, and that yield I mean you know the the great statistic that I like to say that I like to cite to people about the Eisenhower administration is that through eight years of enormous prosperity and growth um, the total and and an ongoing nuclear-fueled conflict with the Soviet Union and China, the total number of American battle casualties from the end of the Korean War, the Korean War came to an armistice sure, six sure. months after Eisenhower took office, the yep. total number of American battle casualties from that point to the end of the Eisenhower administration is one. There's one American military serviceman shot to death in Lebanon. That's the only battlefield casualty of the post-Korea Eisenhower administration. So. Wow. And there's really nothing like that in American history, um, a period like that. Certainly a period of when you think about all of the global conflicts that occurred during those seven and a half years. um, This one's a little different because this is much more publicly waged. It's not in concert with our allies. In fact, that's what makes it so special is that it was in opposition to the allies. So in that sense, it's atypical, I think, of Ike's diplomacy. Um, But it does have some of those hallmarks that – willingness to threaten, that use of economic power, um, that genuine reluctance, really deep-seated reluctance to commit American forces to battle, but the willingness to let the other side think you might do so at any given moment. Um, All of that's here. And those, I think, are really important lessons of the Eisenhower years. And, you know, Eisenhower was the first American president to have a nuclear weapon and not use it right I mean I, I mean Truman's German, was the <laughs> first point. to get it and used it yeah. and then I got it and for years I had it and and could have used it many people wanted him to use nuclear weapons to end the Korean War um, right, right so that that power uh, that maintenance of power without the full use of it is a, a, a lesson of humility and strength in humility, I think that uh, Lord knows we would be well to observe today.
0: And I, I think that
1: many presidents aspire to it. Few have mastered it as well as he did.
0: If you've enjoyed this interview with Jim and want to learn more about Eisenhower, please pick up Eisenhower, The White House Years, from your nearest bookstore. Uh, Jim is also the editor of Blueprint Magazine at UCLA, a public policy magazine you may well enjoy. Thank you for your time, Jim. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we're going to take a closer look at the election that put Ike in the White House. 1952 was a fork in the road year for the Republican Party and the nation. Isolationism and internationalism were on the ballot. And in one of the crazier counterfactuals I've seen, we were this close to having President Douglas MacArthur in the White House. A discussion with our old friend Christopher Nichols of Ohio State on the election of 52 is coming up next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.